I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Alexis the Midwife. And I'm Becky the Doula. Welcome to Notes from the Mother Box, where we will be having real and frank conversations about the highs and lows of the parenting journey. And if you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Acast, iTunes and Spotify and follow us over on Instagram. So pop the kettle on, pour yourself a cuppa, get comfy and enjoy this week's episode of Notes from the Mother Box. Today we are so excited to have the wise and wonderful Susie Redding join us for a chat. Susie is a mum of two, coach for loss and change, author, psychologist, speaker, yogi, personal trainer. Susie, how on earth do you fit it all in? Clearly there's a lot of variation in every day. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. We're going to get down to all the nitty gritty about self-care, which we know that obviously Becky and I and yourself are very passionate about. And you talk a lot about integrating self-care habits and practicing into day-to-day modern life in simple and effective ways. And if it's okay just to start with I want to backtrack ever so slightly and I want to just read a little section out from the introduction of the self-care revolution just to begin with and these are your words Susie I don't know whether it was exhaustion grief postnatal depression or a combination of those things in a lot of ways I don't think a label is even necessary I was just having a normal human response to an extremely taxing set of variables. And whatever it was, I really struggled. Now this goes back to obviously your experience on a personal level. And I wonder whether we can take a step back and think about your pregnancy with your first baby, your birth, and what was going on in your life at that time? Sure. Yeah, it was a collision of of really huge life events. So we'd moved from one side of the globe to the other. Um, I was pregnant. It was the same time as my father was was having a very serious decline and there was no answers. You know, he mm-hmm. was a, a doctor himself and seeking lots of, um, uh, well, trying to work out what was going on. And um, no one could tell him. And he had a breathing failure when I was 40 weeks pregnant and ended up being rushed Mm. to the same hospital that I was due to give birth in. And it was just a horrendous time. So I spent the seven days before Charlotte arrived saying last goodbyes to dad. So you can imagine the state I was in before giving birth. And then after giving birth, the only, you know, the best way I can describe it is energetic bankruptcy, you know, having Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing left in Mm. the tank and wondering how I was going to look after myself, let alone this sweet little cherub in my arms that, Mm. you know, it's my first experience of looking after a baby. What on earth do you do with them? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So really, really tough, really tough experience there. And then as you went into the postnatal period, you sort of started to think about ways, and I think you talk about in the book, you and your husband kind of had a bit of a time where you got together and discussed, you know, how are you going to look after yourself a little bit better? And like you say, you know, the emotional, the the bankruptcy and the energetic bankruptcy that you're experiencing. And bit by bit, you started to find ways to actually start caring for your mind and your body really well and putting yourself to the top of the agenda again. I think it's a really 
human impulse that, you know, when we become mums, we want to give every cell and fibre of ourselves to our, our, our children. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to be there for my parents. I think I learnt pretty hard and fast that if I don't nourish myself, I cannot be there in the mm. capacity that I aspire to for anyone else. Mm. So really, you know, energetic bankruptcy serves no one. And if I can't do it for me, I had to do it for those in my care because otherwise, you know, I wasn't, I, I, I couldn't, couldn't show up for them. And, and, you know, motherhood isn't a sprint. Mm. It's a marathon. We've got yeah. to pace ourselves. And, you know, I think even if you've got a healthy relationship with self-care, if there's, there are no barriers in terms of guilt uh, I think maternal guilt does make it pretty hard for for us mums to mm. take care of ourselves. But even if you're well-versed in it, I think when we become mums, we need a whole new mm. self-care toolkit because the stuff that we did before mm. having children largely becomes inaccessible because mm. we don't have the same time, energy, funds, all of that stuff can make yeah. it so hard. Absolutely. Definitely. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about this more a little bit as we as we go on, actually. But just from a personal experience, and we've spoken about this before, Susie, because just anyone listening, just to give a bit of context, I was very, very lucky. I went to a networking event a couple of years ago and I was placed next to Susie at the table. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like racking her brains and just getting all her glorious nuggets of information because she truly is one of life's radiators. And Susie, I just have to say, just sitting beside you, you just radiate light and just, you know, it, you're such a joy to be around. My dad um, died 18 months before I had my my firstborn, very suddenly. And we were ever so close. We were like two peas in a pod. I always say that, but it's absolutely true. I just look just like him even. And um, at the same time, I was also going through an infertility uh, journey. And so it took three years to have Toby, who's my first, my eldest, who's nine now. And I remember when he arrived being so eternally grateful that I'd been given the opportunity to be a mum and this beautiful baby was here, but also in no denial about the fact that grief lived in my head at the same time. And I'm mm. sure from what you were just saying, you know, that, that euphoria and, and gratitude and, and joy and love and grief you know, all coexisting in that melting pot of motherhood in the early days. And I just felt like, oh, I could have done with that ex without that extra layer to kind of complicate things. Because of course, every little face he pulled that reminded me of my dad, you know, we named him after my dad. There were lots of elements that we we brought in. And actually, I always say, I feel like as Toby was on the, on the way down and my dad was on the way up, they high-fived each other. And my dad sort of said to him, listen, dude, it's your turn. You know, yeah. so how what was that like for you as well? Because obviously you were going through a very trying time, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but obviously no. in the end, your your dad did pass away, didn't he? He did die. He did, yeah. So for dad, it was a fifteen month battle with what yeah. was posthumously diagnosed as motor neurone disease. Yeah, and it was just, it was just like wading through treacle. You know, it, it, you can't split your psyche in two. You can't fully celebrate new life at the same time as grieving mm. loss it's mm. it, it it you know it colors everything and the, the crazy thing is it the same variables mm. occurred the second time around when we had ted we moved back to the uk to be close to my father-in-law who was in end-stage heart failure and thankfully we we made it before um you know so that we could actually have time with him but he ted was four months old when my father-in-law passed away. So it was the same mm. variables the second yeah. time round. But what I would say is that with the passage of time, you know, Charlotte was was four when Ted was born. I'd had years mm. to rebuild, to restore, to heal my nervous system. And I'd been very diligent in, in the time before having Ted when I was preparing for, for his arrival to really bolster my energy levels and have um, what I call my kick-ass self-care toolkit mm. to turn to. <laughs> it made all the difference. Mm. You know, yeah. it still hurt. You know, self-care doesn't make us immune from these life experiences, mm. but it was a vastly different experience. Um, I, I felt like I was still pushed around by life, but it didn't hold me down and pin me down. But you know yeah. what, Susie, is that exactly as you're talking about there is the fact that you have had the experience of being pushed around by life, of experiencing those incredibly challenging variables. I really believe this that has created, you know, your lived experience, which has fed into these incredible 
books that you've written, which are just, I mean, anybody listening, we'll put it all in the show notes as well so that they can have a look and we will talk about it more going forward. But of course, having lived it, you know, on a personal level, it's going to have an impact hugely on the work that you do. Going back, Susie, to um, you mentioned the word shame, which is something that I see a lot with with my ladies in the clinic they feel quite ashamed and guilty of coming in and kind of taking care of themselves and there's this sort of this narrative in our community isn't there about um it being indulgent or it being a bit diva-ish or you know and I had one lady actually I'd gone to do a postnatal massage for and she was really enjoying her massage and her mum had come to look after the baby and mum was sort of hovering around and she came over and she sort of went oh didn't have anything like this in my day and it was immediate sort of shaming you know quite a shaming behavior and I said oh no no but you know you did have 10 days in bed didn't you you know we we leave hospital a bit earlier now and I tried to kind of cushion it for but but because I was working on her physically her body tensed up and I felt the immediate like oh oh god you know like she'd done something wrong and obviously we bonded over the airways kind of talking about the importance of self-care and how you always say it isn't selfish it's essential how do you work with women to make sure that they don't get caught up in that kind of guilt and shame when they take time out for themselves I think it comes down to reframing what self-care means to people Mm -hmm. and also taking a look at what you know, a successful mum is. Mm. It's twofold. So um, we need to, to to blow away this myth that self-care is limited to luxurious indulgent practices. Mm. Let's be honest, self-care is health care. Mm. Yeah. And without our health, what do we have? Yeah. Our children are not served by us running ourselves ragged, mm-hmm. depleting ourselves and, and, and pitching up with nothing left in the tank. It serves yeah. no one. And it's also understanding that to be an effective mother doesn't mean a complete subjugation of your needs. Yeah. And, yes. and I think that maybe needs to evolve. You know, when you mm. have a newborn, it's not like, you know, they cry at night and you can just roll over and say, not now, sweetie. We do have to kind of leap mm. into action. But it's as our children get older, it's, it's allowing them to, to, you know, it's okay if you get bored for a minute. I can't do that for you right now. Mm-hmm. No, we're not going to watch that TV show just because that's the only thing you want to watch. You know, we, there are other people in the house. Yeah. So it's it's redefining uh, what a successful mum is and, yeah. and really blowing away those myths about self-care, you know. Yeah. I think also it's a cultural thing as well, Susie, because, you know, Becky and I have been really fortunate to work in different cultures. And, you know, in the UK, we work with midwives from throughout the world who've shared a lot of wisdom with us but also Becky's done work in Asia she's done work in South America I spent some time a couple of years ago in Morocco seeing how they treat the postpartum postnatal period out there a lot of countries a lot of places and cultures will really consider that there is like a bedding in time that there's a time to be to be still and to be intentional about your healing you're adjusting to being a mum whether it be for the first or the sixth or the 15th time you know there is time for all other obligations to be taken off your shoulders and for you to focus on this new little baby that you've got and your own sense of of well-being at that time and they don't even not in in a million years do they look at that as indulgence they that Mm. that is part of the tradition and the ritual of becoming a mother again we need a return to that yeah yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I was doing my massage training, actually, it was really interesting because in Thailand on on the course there, they were talking about how crazy they think it is that we only go for massages when we're broken, you know, when we've got Mm. pain so bad that we actually can't turn our head anymore. And they're like, don't you just, you know, obviously over there, it's all about maintenance. So you're maintaining your Mm. body. And that's what I'd love to see, a shift of us topping ourselves up enough so that we're just staying in a good space rather than you know crashing so badly and when 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 we talk about you know what are the benefits of self-care that's when it becomes crystal clear i mean one it helps Mm. us cope in the moment because life is inherently stressful Mm -hmm. you know and it's it's not just things that you don't want that tax us energetically you know of course conflict illness stress that taxes us but stuff that we do want Mm. like having kids like moving house like even planning a holiday all of these things incur an energetic tax so we we need self-care just to help us get through the daily grind and then it's more than that we need it then to help us restore and heal 
Yeah. And we need it to provide a protective buffer against the next curveball because when we're well nourished, that's when we're best placed to cope responsively, creatively to life in all of its glory. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you think about any quality that you aspire to model as a human being in any role that's important to you, you're more likely to be that when you've nourished yeah. yourself. So mm. it's it's the win-win. And then for parents, if we want to raise compassionate, resilient yes. kids, we need to be modelling self-care, we need mm. to be engaging in family practices, and we need to be one step further, we need to be developing age-appropriate toolkits for our kids. Mm, yes, absolutely. Definitely. I think I'm sure we're all absolutely in agreement about this. Ideally, this happens before somebody is on their knees, they're frazzled, they're overwhelmed because everything's coming at them from every direction. They don't know what to do with themselves. And I wonder, with perhaps women particularly that you've worked with over the years who have come to you and just said, Susie, I'm just enough is enough. I've reached the end of my tether and I don't know where to start looking after myself, but I know something has got to change. Like nothing changes if nothing changes. I love that expression. Mm. Where do, do you come in in that, in that moment for a woman who's frankly just knows something has to change, is completely and utterly, um, I suppose she's completely paid all her energetic tax up and she's got nothing more to give. What yeah. could be the little changes she could make just to start herself, get herself mm -hmm. back on the straight and narrow of really caring for herself well? Yeah, I think this is so important because there are so many people who are in this state of overwhelm. And what I would say is that this is where my journey, my real journey with self-care began from mm -hmm. this place of feeling like oh, I've got, what do I do? I've got, I've got nothing to give. Mm. So we receive, we give ourselves permission to receive we need soothing, nourishing practices that take no energy. So I'm talking yes. about receiving nature's beauty. I'm talking about extending tenderness towards ourselves, mm. um, being with the breath, um, touch, mm -hmm. you know, getting the oxytocin going, whether this is, you know, touch that you receive or touch that you extend towards yourself. You know, it can be as simple as holding your own hand and saying, yeah, I, I can be here for myself. I bear witness to my emotions. I give myself permission to feel. And I think it's also really important that people don't feel that they've got to do this on their own. Yeah, yeah I'm a huge advocate for self-care, but I didn't, my healing journey wasn't mm. achieved in isolation, right? I had the love and support of people around me and I needed to let them in and I needed to let them know Mm. how they could best help because they were waiting in the wings, yeah. right? Or they were offering mm. things. And sometimes what they were offering wasn't quite the right thing. And I had to get brave and say, could you do this instead? Would that be okay? Or if we get together, can we do it for half an hour rather than an hour? You know, it's mm. being brave and shaping the off, the, you know, the offers of help that are, are, are there. Yeah. But it's, it's restorative practices, you know, and we're embedded in a culture that tells us you snooze, you lose, which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to reclaim the ability to relax yeah, yeah. because that's what restores the nervous system mm -hmm. so I'm talking legs up the wall sitting in the sunshine um, watching the moving cloudscape breath work to help us move through the energetic charge of our emotions yeah. you know we need that emotional digestion that's so important yeah, lots of different things. The legs up the wall, which I know that you is one of your, your things. And in Stand Tall Like a Mountain, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go on, um, my son and I, my eldest son, you know, the nine-year-old, found uh, the time out of school the most challenging out of all three of them. He loves school. He loves learning. He's quite an academic kid. And he desperately, desperately missed school and his friends. And there were times when he just felt so, so angry and cross. And, you know, I just said to him, let's do some legs up the wall. And I just took a page out of Susie's book. And sometimes that was all we needed to do. I just needed to be there with him, even if we just quietly did it together side by side. And it will always get a bit of a giggle out of both of us because it's just a bit funny, isn't it? Lying on the floor with your legs up in that position. But he really, really enjoyed it, actually. I think it's amazing. I do it actually at the end of if I've been working all day and I'm sort of dealing with lots and lots of different clients mm. before I come back down into the family because it's a whole other hat that you have to put on. Mm. I put my legs up the wall for 10 and just have some big breaths and then I'm fine. You know, it's, mm. it's a really good resetter, isn't it? It sort of, I don't know what it does. How does it work, Susie? Is it? Is it? So um, it's the position in first aid that we would put someone in when they're in shock. 
Okay. Yeah, because it redistributes the blood flow to the vital organs. So it's very replenishing. Yeah. Um, what I would say is it, it doesn't have to be legs up the wall. To be honest with you, I rolled out my yoga mat when Charlotte was having a nap. And granted, sometimes she only slept for 20 minutes. But I rolled out my yoga mat and I set myself up so I could have a little snooze on it. Yeah. I didn't even do any yoga mm. for like the first six months of her life because my yeah. body mind was just saying, for God's sake, can you just rest? Just rest, yeah. please. So, you know, whatever form that takes, yeah. prioritize rest. My, my mantra has become sleep for sanity, rest for resilience. Oh, nice. I like that. Mm. That's a good, that is a good mantra. On the opposite side of rest, you're a yogi and a personal trainer. And um, I talk a lot in my work about the importance of movement for your, your mental health. Can you talk to us a bit more about that? Because I know that's something you talk about a lot as well. I love that. Yeah, that's another mantra. Move for mental health. Move for your mood. Yeah. <laughs> Move for access to a sense of humour. Absolutely. Mm. Originally, I trained as a psychologist. But when I came out of uni in my early 20s, I didn't feel like I'd earned my stripes as a human being yet to work therapeutically. Mm. So as luck would have it, I'd moved to London. My part-time job of working as a personal trainer was something I could do very easily here. So I, I started my own business and I am so glad I took that little detour on, on my career because that chapter really taught me uh, there's no separation between mental health and physical health. Mm -hmm. There really is no separation between mind and body. Mm -hmm. I got to work with thousands of people in that decade. And now I work primarily, primarily as a psychologist, but for every single person I work with, there's some kind of prescription of movement mm -hmm. because our mood, how we feel is an embodied state. Mm. So we need to draw on our physicality as much as we need to draw on our thought processes. Uh, we need to work with the breath as much as we work with posture. So, um, I, I love that I've got these different threads. The, the yoga sort of showed me the bridge between the mind and the body, but the personal training showed me how I could use movement to move, to change our mood. And, and the psychology is the thing that it helps people establish healthy habit change because mm. it's hard for us human beings to create change. Yeah. And I, I, if you want to feel differently, you've got to do things differently. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me a bit, and it's slightly different, but where you go back to talking about that, you know, the mind and the body are one of the same. And, you know, I'm a hypnobirthing teacher and I hypnobirthed with my births, which are all different. And as a midwife and a hypnobirthing teacher, obviously I talk about fear, tension, pain cycle until the cows come home. And I've seen it with my own eyes so many times when the, the mind takes over and the physical reaction in the body, the surges, the contractions stop coming. Everything closes up, the, you know, the legs close, the pelvic floor says, uh-uh, not today. Everything is affected by that. So, you know, it, we've got to just remember that it is... It's a continuous feedback mechanism between what is going on in the body, what's going on in the mind, then what goes on in the body and what's going mm. on in the mind. And it's just, you've got to think about them two being married to each other and they're working together in beautiful harmony. Lots of times I've got to have clients who are really surprised that they suddenly burst into tears during a massage. And I'm like, well, I'm manually moving mm. you. I'm kind of, you know, you've got a stuck shoulder. Often it's because we've packed it full of stuff, you know, that we, we can't quite deal with yet. And I'm manually moving it. And then I always say to them, just go home, put some music on and just move like have a little wiggle and and they're like I sobbed I sobbed I'm like good you probably needed that you know so it's sort of they work so well together don't they I love it also when we're going through the complexities of life and you know like we've mentioned before everything that that's building up and and surrounding us Becky and I talk a lot about how it's so easy to get stuck in that comparison trap and be looking at other people and what they're doing, what they're achieving and how they might be seeming on the outside coping so well with everything when we don't feel like we are. And I know that you talk a lot about the fact that no one is immune from stress, from loss and from change. And I wondered whether you could, again, just talk us through a little bit about that. Do you know, I can. I just remember so vividly pacing the streets of, of the northern beaches in Sydney wearing dark glasses because I was sobbing behind them. Mm. But, you know, whenever someone approached me, I'd sort of pull myself together. You just never know mm. what's going on behind a put-together face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just so important that we don't compare how we feel inside to how people appear on the outside mm -hmm. and how their filtered photos appear. Mm. You know, it's... We all feel it. And mm. I think the more open and honestly we can talk about 
our experiences the better. And that's why I'm so candid in, in sharing my life experiences. But what I will say is that we, we, we can be remarkably resilient too. Mm. Um, and this, the toolkit that I've developed really has helped me weather changes and, and loss and, and the worry of this period mm. with much greater ease is not the right word, but it's just, it's given me an anchor. There are things that we can do, mm. but I think we need, we need a specific toolkit for, for those different experiences. So for stress, we need access to, um, calming and soothing practices because mm -hmm. the relaxation is the antidote to stress and anxiety yeah. and for, for loss, for grief, we need to develop our ability to feel our feelings to sit yeah. with difficult emotions. That's its own skill set in itself. And then when it comes to navigating change, there's an element of grief in there because we're mourning what was, even if it's something mm. we're, we're moving towards that we're, you know, hugely excited about, there's still a loss to mourn, but there's a sense of, we need to learn how to stand tall and advocate for ourselves, to speak our truth, to mm -hmm. connect with our values and to decide for ourselves, what does a well-lived life look like for us as an individual do you know what actually it's really interesting you should say that Susie because um you know what I said to you beforehand about when Toby was born I was actually going through bereavement grief as in from losing my dad but then I also realized that when I unpacked it all I was going through a sort of grief and mourning for the life I had before I became a mother and actually, I remember having a chat with my husband about this and I was like, I feel so ungrateful, like I should not, especially after an infertility journey and a lot of women who go through infertility journeys will say to you, they don't feel like they have any right once the baby gets here to complain about anything because they're so lucky that they've they've had that chance to become a mum. And I remember saying, oh, I just, I do miss just being able to just go out with you after work at the drop of a hat for a nice meal and, you know, plan the sort of adventures and holidays that we would take together or just sit quietly on a Sunday with nothing to do and sit in bed reading magazines and, and, and having a, a laugh together uh, in, in such a carefree way, perhaps, that I found a bit trickier once I'd become a mum because there was a bit more rhythm and routine to stuff. And actually, he turned to me, he made a really valuable point, which is like, listen, don't feel bad about that. That's really great that our life was so super and full before we became parents that we actually miss it a little bit as well. That actually both sides of our lives have been so enriching for us, that our friends were so, you know, fulfilling that being able to see them whenever that we wanted to um, was such a joy for us and that we're missing them a little bit now that we don't have so, so quite so much freedom with these little ones. And I think that's okay as well, isn't it? It is. And in that sense, you were validated and you were heard and you were understood. Mm. And it's okay yeah. to, to have that whole commingling mm. of feelings. And that's, I think that kind of sums up motherhood, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. And that your, your experiences are so different as well. Like I had a friend, we had babies at the same time, but we're very different characters. And actually when she feels overwhelmed, she needs to be out and with people. And when I feel overwhelmed, I need quiet and alone time. Mm. And so she'd see me at home with, with my baby and think that I was just loving motherhood. And I'd see her out thinking she was having an amazing time and acing it all. But actually we were both treading water, but in our own unique ways that work for us. So it's really important to remember that as well, isn't it? That it, just because someone's out and about doesn't mean that they're acing it. They're, they might be treading water as well. You know, it's just their coping mechanism. Oh, I think that's beautiful insight because it's very easy to interpret things through our lens. Mm -hmm. But in actual fact, you know, different things resonate for different people. We all have our own struggles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Susie, what we love about your, we love your Monday micro moments. We tune into those. Uh, and what we love about your techniques is that they're they're sort of tangible for all, like parents, kids, you know, they're, they're really good, uh, but easy, practical tips. How would you suggest somebody kind of, because they work for the whole family, how would you suggest somebody kind of insert them into their general family day? Do you kind of have top tips for that, for coaching? That is a gorgeous question. Um, I think the easiest place to start is to scan through your everyday actions and ask yourself and do this with the kids, how mm -hmm. can we make these everyday things more nourishing? 
Okay. How can we bring a little bit more presence or purpose or mindfulness to it so that it's not something you have to add to your our already busy days? Yeah. It's, it's the way in which we, we move through them. So it could be, you know, a little ritual to greet the day. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm loving that at the moment we all have a little opportunity to have a family snuggle in bed yeah. before we've got it all because before my husband was leaving at crazy o'clock to get mm. into London he's now working from home so there's there are these opportunities to we listen for birds you know we think about one thing that we're happily anticipating in our day or it's yeah. a hug you know just something like that changes the quality of the morning mm. I think it's little rituals that we embed in our day that make all the difference but we can yeah. co-create these with our kids now the thing that blows me away is that when I say to my kids hey what do you think about this they generate so many solutions mm. themselves it's not about yeah. me saying you must do this it's well let's, well let's have a little play here how could we do things differently yeah. and they're all on board and we all benefit I absolutely yeah. love the idea of happily anticipating can I just reinforce yeah. that right now? <laughs> what a great thing to ask your children while they're perhaps having a bowl, you know, a bowl of cornflakes in the morning about the day mm. ahead of them. I think that's really lovely. And perhaps at the end of the day as well, Susie, what might you do then when they're sort of back from school or wherever yes. they might have been? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing how little information you can get out of your kids at the end of the day, right? Am I the <laughs> so only one? <laughs> what did you have for lunch? Oh, I can't remember. It generally, it's, it's when they're, um, when they're already in bed, we've done all the rituals, that's when yes. it all spools out and just some little you know if if there's if there's the time in the inclusion it might be well did you learn something about yourself today or mm. you know what will you remember or the next time we talk to grandma is there something that happened today that you want to share with her mm -hmm. so little little things like that yeah, and for mums and dads if the one thing that you are happily anticipating in your day is getting back into bed at the end of it that's also okay <laughs> I love bedtime. <laughs> I, I do have a ah moment when I get into bed in the evenings, I have to yeah. say. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You did a brilliant Monday Micro Moments the other day, actually, about how to prepare for having a winter with this pandemic, pandemic still present, with COVID still around. And you spoke about being forearmed is forewarned. You spoke about proactive self-care and planning self-care for your future self. Now, although that was obviously in the context of at the moment with what's happening in the world and the pandemic and, you know, the stresses and overwhelm that comes from that, actually, it kind of just made me think, that's something that we should all be doing always, even outside of the circumstances at the moment. Mm -hmm. So can you remind us a little bit as to um, your approach and, and the ideas that you put forward the other day about how to sort of look forward to and prepare for the next six months ahead of us, really? Sure. I think it was um, I, in, in winter, we've got to prepare the home environment because that's yes. where we're going to spend a lot of time. So how can we, I like having a little cozy nook. I mean, it mm. would be brilliant if I could marry condo the house, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> but I can create one little spot that's my little haven, you yes. know, whether it's, a, you know, I've just had the um, the throws that live on the, the sofa dry cleaned and yeah. they smell great. It's like, well, why didn't I do that like two years ago? Would yeah, it make yeah. such a difference? Using scent, using light, having mm. little focal points throughout the house of images or artwork, that makes a huge yeah. difference. That That's the first thing. So drawing on the power of our environment. The second suggestion was to create a movement menu or getting prepared so that you've got all the kit that you need to be able to move mm. in winter inside and outside. You know, I think that preparation really makes it easier to find something doable in the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there was the suggestion of having a mood boosting 
mind map. So proactively, as a family or for you as an individual, think about what's the stuff that gets the happies going, whether it's activities, hobbies, artistic pursuits, or whether it's sort of rituals or skills, remembering that self-care is not just a thing that you do, it's actually a skill that you weave, mm. that you imbue your day with, right? Mm. So maybe it's setting the intention to invoke curiosity mm. or compassion or tender self-talk. You know, that, that's in, in the, the, the mood-boosting mind map. And coping skills. We talked about coping skills as well, didn't we? Um, and the two that I suggested there were the first one is learning how to relax, Mm-hmm. because that will help us mediate the the stress hormones that we're all inevitably feeling because there's so much uncertainty. We just don't know what's around the corner. So we need to cultivate that ability to soften and drop for there to be an absence of problem solving, mm-hmm. troubleshooting, where we can just say, okay, for the next five minutes, I'm just going to allow myself to be and breathe. The world can wait. Another mantra. I love mantra, clearly. Yes. <laughs> um, and mindfulness was the other coping skill. Um, and, and the reason why mindfulness is so important is that really without the mindful check-in, you know, observing where we're at, noticing mentally, emotionally, physically, energetically, how can we take care of ourselves? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's mindfulness is just such a core coping skill in itself, but it really it forms the foundation of our ability to soothe ourselves. Mm, I love that actually. And I, I talk a lot with my clients about mindfulness, but often gets met with I'm I'm busy I'm so busy you know in this whole this busyness that comes up all the time and it's almost like a kind of badge of honor isn't it sometimes the word busy and I know you talk quite a lot about it as well and it's sort of trying to sort of teach people that we can be busy but we can also take those moments and lean into the busy but also be mindful as well how do you how do you battle that when you're working with people I think it's it's a matter of Again, it's just weaving mindfulness practices into our day. Okay, so not adding it on top of stuff. Yes, and, and okay. finding something that resonates. So for some people, they, they, they feel overwhelmed by a seated practice where the intention is to clear your mind. You know, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't work for everyone, and that's fine. Yeah. So an alternative to that is having a mindful shower where you bear yeah. witness to the, the, the properties of the scent, the cleansing properties of the water, and you set the intention to not use that time to ruminate or worry. Mm. Yeah, you just you, you savour your senses. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's um, mindfully folding the washing, mm. whereas yeah. you fold each item. You, 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 you feel the texture of it, the sensation of it. You, there's a sense of gratitude of I, I can clothe my children. We have this roof above our head. It's yeah. simple things like that that... Um, that build our mindfulness muscles or as a family what i love is going for a nature walk and mm. and each giving voice to the things that we find awe inspiring or uplifting and i love that once you get into the habit of that your children will volunteer these beautiful things that they see all day every day it's yeah. so so uplifting and i guess it is changing that isn't it it's 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 sort of um changing the because some people look at mindfulness and they think it's almost like a sit, sit down meditation and actually like this whole heap of time but you're right it is actually just being more mindful in our everyday activities mm. and being very present isn't it so it's it that's a that's a kind of reframe I think that we need to get into so I suppose you don't have to carve out yeah. half an hour to sit and do a guided relaxation mm. it could be like Susie says going for a walk but really intentionally and taking everything in and really being mindful as you walk or it could be simply Mm. I've seen this a few times which I quite like it's like if you're going to eat an apple you just do it but really be present and intentional and mindful with every single bite what are you tasting what does it feel like what's the sensory stimulation that's going on there I think that that's really important as well Mm. Susie you talk a lot about breath work as do Becky and I we absolutely love using really simple and effective breathing techniques with the ladies that we're working with but ourselves as well and I absolutely am not overselling this when I say 
using breathing is what got me through my three labours. And it is most certainly what got me through new motherhood, um, toddler tantrums. And again, when life is just throwing everything at you from every direction. For me, it's about just going back and taking three deep breaths. And I know that that is super simple. But as long as I'm doing, I tend to do the four in through the nose and the six to eight out through the mouth. That's my absolute favourite. And sometimes I put a visual with it. And sometimes I just leave the the breath work to talk for itself. (laughs) And I know that you often talk about it. And I wondered if you could share with us maybe a couple of your absolute favourite breathing techniques that might be helpful for those listening. The one that I want to start with is for people who have tried breath work mm-hmm. and have maybe found it a little bit agitating because I don't know if everyone, anyone else has mm. experienced this, but if I'm feeling anxious or worried or stressed and someone says, hey, take a deep breath, well, sometimes that mm. can amplify those feelings. Yeah. So the solution is we still want to work with the breath Instead of thinking about the breath directly, we pair movement with breath and we focus on the movement. Mm. So the breathing practice is my chicken wing shoulder rolls where you put your fingertips on your shoulders to form your chicken wing. Breathe in, sweep the elbows up and breathe out, take your elbows back and down and do a few more of those. So you're moving in time with the breath. You're not thinking about the breath, but your body by virtue of this movement is your elongating getting an opening up the rib cage mm. to receive a more complete in-breath. And as the, the arms lower, it helps you more completely empty the lungs. So oh, I like that. That I think is really powerful. It's a good one for, it's calming, mm. but it's also energizing. Yeah. Mm. So, some breath work kind of puts you to sleep and you want that towards the end of the day. You don't want that in the morning. So mm-hmm. yeah. the chicken wing shoulder roll is good is is a good one that we can dot through our day and we can share it Mm. with the kids and they have a giggle because it's got a silly name you know (laughs) and there's a bit of mood alchemy there the second one is the lion breath so we were talking earlier about dissipating the energetic charge Mm -hmm. of of our emotions Mm -hmm. i love the lion breath because instead of saying something harmful it allows us to expunge ourselves of resentment, rage, anger, mm. irritation in a safe and healthy way. And again, it looks silly. It's got a silly name. The kids will love it. Yes. Yeah. And we need to do it with them <laughs> and remind them that they can do it instead of whacking their uh, little sibling. So mm. <laughs> let me talk you through it and then we can try it. We breathe in yeah. through the nose. And then we exhale through the mouth with the tongue extended as far out as possible with a, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like this. And once more. And it really, it it feels feels good good to let go of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I certainly did that one with my son during lockdown, again, the eldest, when he was feeling very cross. Because, you know, bless him. And my heart just went out for him because he's a kid that does a lot of exercise. He plays a lot of football. And so for him, lockdown physically, I think, was quite challenging. And so we needed to find strategies and and techniques. And we, you know, this is where your book, Stand Tall Like a Mountain, just came into absolute play. It was brilliant. And I remember I did that one with him at some point, as well as the, the legs up the wall and we did a few of the lovely exercises that were in there as well and it was really helpful because you know Susie he's quite a, a emotionally quite smart kid and he sort of said to me mommy I feel more angry than I've ever felt before and I don't I don't recognize that part of myself mm. and and he it actually he worried himself by you know by kind of like all those different emotions that he was understandably experiencing he's also the sort of kid and I must tell you this because it just just oh it just made my heart burst the other day he said mummy we were in English at school and the teacher was reading a really sad story and I started to cry and you can imagine you know he's in year five so this is like year nine and you know year five sorry age um nine and ten kids and he said he said, I said, oh, darling, what was the story about? And he said, oh, a little boy had an accident and he became blind. And um, the scene was that the mum came to the hospital to, and she found out that he'd never see again. And she, 
obviously emotion overcame her and she burst into tears. And he said, then I burst into tears. And I said, and then what happened? He said, oh, then my teacher came over to me and took me out of the room. And she sounded so lovely. And she said, Toby, feeling sad is very important. It's a very, it's a very you know, good emotion to have, you know, and this is an appropriate time to feel that way. And said, you know what, when I read an emotional book, I cry as well. And she really validated his feelings for him. And he came back and there was no shame. Nobody laughed at him or called him silly because it was, you know, it was just how he was feeling and he was being honest. And I just thought this was just recently, by the way, like last week. And I just thought it was rather sweet, really, in that that beautiful support that he received at school mm. for it as well. That's very touching. You know, that yeah. is mm. emotional health. Yeah, mm. there's, there's, there's no good or bad emotions. There is mm. an appropriate emotion in an appropriate intensity mm. to a set of circumstances. When something sad happens, it's appropriate to feel sad. Mm. So how beautiful that he received that messaging. And that that's, that's what our children need to hear. And that's for, for us parents who haven't had this modelled for us. Yeah. Right. This wasn't modeled for us growing up. No, it's okay to allow our children into our emotional lives, mm. to share with them how we're feeling and to build our self-soothing toolkit together. We learn yeah. together. And that's what we love about your book, actually, that you talk about all of the emotions that, that kids can feel and, and validate all of them. Because you're right, you know, when I grew up, it, we were told, don't cry, don't cry. It was sort of shut down, wasn't it, if you mm. were sad. And absolutely don't lose your temper or get angry you know those those two and and I had real trouble with those emotions growing up and you know took years of therapy to unpick it all and that's why it's so nice now that the conversation has changed and that we're really validating all those all those emotions for children because it's so important and I'm excited to see what adults they become actually I think it'll be brilliant oh it's a beautiful evolution isn't it yeah Yeah. it's the evolution of humanity at play we're watching it unfold in front of our eyes aren't we yeah I wonder why we have become a sort of a culture that over the years has look at looked at kids crying sadly particularly little boys crying little boys don't cry you know not allowed to show those emotions that we see anger as such an ugly emotion and that you mustn't be angry in front of people because you know it's just not a very pleasant thing to bear witness for but I I know and you talk about this a lot but there are appropriate ways and there are safe ways to be able to share those emotions and feel those emotions and never, ever to feel embarrassed um, and, and shamed about those emotions, Susie. And what mm. you talk talk mm. through with kids, tell us a little bit, because I know this is a lot in Stand Tall Like a Mountain. You talk about, mm. you know, the full array of, of emotions. You've got that lovely page where you've got all the little facial expressions that a child might be feeling and which one depicts the way you're feeling right now. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So I think a useful place to start when we're having conversations with our children about emotions is to start to try and develop a rich vocabulary around Mm -hmm. being able to describe different emotions. And I think that can be done by sharing how you feel. Mm -hmm. Also, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're reading stories, trying to empathise and understand how a character might be feeling when you're watching TV shows just asking questions about what do you think that person might be feeling in that moment? So it's, it's kind of getting the conversation on the radar. And then I think it's about helping our kids understand, as I said before, there's no good or bad emotions. Mm-hmm. There's an appropriate emotion. It's okay mm-hmm. to feel them all, but it's what we do with them that counts. You know, being angry doesn't then give us permission to be hurtful with that anger. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. understanding that there are ways that we can move through our emotions in, in safe and healthy ways. Sometimes describing emotions for children is really challenging using, you know, the labels that we normally would. But you can use other descriptors like what if it was a weather, what would it be? If it's an animal, what would your feeling oh, be? Yes. So it's I remember you writing yeah. about that. That's brilliant. And actually we use that. What animal would your emotion be right now? That was so effective. It just allows us to get curious about it which then allows us to step back and then we're not so in the throes of it, right? And then we need to build the toolkits of, and I get really prescriptive here, you know, what what can I try when I feel lonely? Or what can I try when I feel cross? Or what can I try when I I feel, what should I do when I feel happy? You know, even even that is a a valid toolkit. And it's working through, okay, you could try this, 
then this, then this, because different things will work in different moments and having choice is really empowering. I love that. And it's um, going back to what you said about us modelling and actually bringing up the conversation again, when I was growing up, um, adults didn't really talk about their feelings, did they? Like you could see there was stuff going on and that people were upset and it would be like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Or nothing's wrong. Or, you know, and you'd be like, it was so confusing because as a kid, you knew that there was something wrong, but there wasn't that open dialogue. So I think it's, um, it's really great now that the conversation has changed and you talk a lot about this about you know sort of being honest about the fact that we also have bad feelings and 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 modeling ourselves Mm. trying out all of these different techniques ourselves as well because then they copy don't they and something I've and I'm going to put my hands up here and say you know I'm not proud of this but sometimes when mummy Alexis has lost her rag a bit with the kids I have then over the years found it a little bit tricky then afterwards to be like oh I'm gonna have to like now apologize and you know it's it's silly but it's kind of just your pride isn't it and then I've become much much better over the years at saying you know what I'm sorry about the way I spoke to you early on I felt a bit hassled I was trying to get you all out of the door for school nobody seemed to be listening to me and frankly I raised my voice and I got angrier than I should I feel like in that moment I should have and I am a bit sorry about it it's like you say the emotion's okay but what are you going to do with it and so in those moments I have doesn't always work like this but I have learned that when the kids are rude to each other when they're feeling frustrated or cross or a bit jealous that one's getting something that the other one isn't getting and they're a little bit unpleasant to each other and it's one step too far they are becoming better at saying like calling it out and recognizing oh that wasn't okay that I did Mm. that and I'm I'm sorry about it I think it's really important that we model that for our kids yeah we're human beings we don't get it right every second of every day and i think if our children can see us being okay with with making mistakes and owning them and making the necessary reparations right we're modeling how to make a good Mm. apology right and what what i find funny is that my kids will now parrot back to me i'm only one person (laughs) mummy I remember learning in therapy, actually, and when I was having therapy for my really, really acute anxiety and depression I had in my my third pregnancy. And I remember it's the first time I'd ever had CBT in my life. And um, one of the things that the therapist said that really stuck with me, actually, is like, Alexis, you are a human being. You are as fallible as the next person. We all are. And that's that's kind of our saving grace. And it's really always stuck with me, like, you're not going to get it right all the time. Like it's laughable to think that would even be possible. So again, coming back to just role modeling that with kids and just letting them know, you know what, we all screw up sometimes and that's okay. And it's about kind of learning something from that experience really. And they learn by the doing, don't they? And they're sort of giving them a bit of autonomy and taking part. I remember doing, um, Ella was acting out and one of my friends is a psychologist so she's very handy and she said you know it's a sign of disconnect you need to connect and I was like okay and so we did a love bombing day which we used to call yes days and it was like where I had to say yes to everything and she was in charge and um, it was brilliant and she obviously had ice cream for breakfast and then we got the bus down to town and she had more sweets and you know it was lovely and I I really (laughs) enjoyed actually just not being in charge and saying yes to everything and it made me realize how much I say no in my day to day and and then it got to about 12 and she said mummy is it time for lunch and I said well it's up to you darling do you remember you it's a yes day and she burst into tears and she said it's really difficult being in charge all the time mummy and I said okay well would you like me to decide and she said yes please and then we went for lunch <laughs> and I thought god like she learned so much from actually experiencing yeah. being in charge you know and, and having all those feelings that I would never have been able to tell her if I'd sat and kind of nagged or tried to explain mm. and so actually giving them a bit of autonomy and letting them run with those feelings and do those things I think they learn from it so much don't they it was a massive eye-opener for me for sure Susie going back to us as adults um another problem that we deal with a lot is the negative self-talk we have a lot of mums who have very 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 harsh critics of their own selves and there's a lot of Mm. negative self-talk going on how do you how do you deal with that when you're working with women I think it's observing that it is a habit Right now, for some people, they want to go back and unpick where that habit has come from. 
-hmm. For others, it's enough just to say it's a habit and I can do something differently and I commit to doing something differently. I think it's really important to acknowledge that we think generally that being tough on ourselves will garner better performance, but it seldom does, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about any nurturing relationship, you know, to get the best out of your child, you don't get it by yelling at them and tearing them down. Mm -hmm. You get it by coaxing, encouraging, reminding them of their strengths, yeah? We need to do the same for ourselves. Mm. And I learned this firsthand when I was a, as, as an athlete. I, I, I learned that if I spoke to myself with, with toxic self-talk, uh, it didn't help me step up. Mm, it actually, yeah. that was a thing that got in my way. The minute that I flicked mm. that switch and I started to talk to myself with tenderness, gentleness, compassion, that's when I actually started performing like the athlete that I aspired to be. And that learning I've taken through with me to motherhood and I've never made that same mistake again because what's the point? Life is tough enough. I don't need extra shit that I pile on myself, right? So it's it's knowing that, and the the interesting thing is research backs this up. Harsh judgment, criticism does not boost willpower. The thing that boosts our ability to make good, healthy decisions is actually our capacity to forgive ourselves. Wasn't there some wasn't there some amazing study about um I remember reading this on my course actually about they, they had plants and they had a set of plants that were spoken to really kindly every day by somebody and kind of sat and you know wiped their leaves and talked to them and then and then a, a group of plants that somebody spoke meanly to the plants and there was a definite difference in the growth rate and how well the plants looked I I really remember reading that and thinking whoa it blew my mind you can even tell like if you lovingly cook a meal you know, it, you can taste the difference rather mm. than if you just throw it together. Do you know, it's so simple. It's we are no different. So mm. if we talk to ourselves with tenderness and if you can't love on yourself, just just be tender, be gentle, bring it back to neutral. I think for some people it's it's mm. too far to, to swing the, the pendulum to the self-love bit. Can we just just be tender, just be gentle? Mm. just coax ourselves. Can we talk about mantras for a minute now? Because I know that you are very passionate about your mantras. And actually, this is just reminding me of it right now, because where there might be that little bit of negative in a dialogue, you know, Becky and I talk a lot about affirmations, and especially because it's relevant for the work that we do when it comes to preparing for birth and in the postnatal period. Could you share with us your favourite day-to-day mantras, perhaps a couple that you just will often turn to? The reason why I love a mantra is that, you know, instead of trying to clear your mind, which is virtually impossible unless you go and meditate Mm. in a Himalayan cave for a decade, a (laughs) mantra just gives you something constructive to think about. And for Mm. me, it kind of just reminds me of all the different ways that I can look after myself. I can be kind to myself. So some of my favourite mantras would be I give myself permission to feel. I soften Mm. into the moment. I can be my own safe place. It's just lovely to have some little sort of self-talk that we can turn to that just kind of, you know, in that moment just resettles our baseline Mm. and makes us just take a still and intentional moment for ourselves. Mm. Susie, finally, we always ask our lovely guests the following question. If you could add a note and pop it inside a mother box heading out to a brand new mum with your best bit of advice on it, what would it say? It's another mantra. It's the motherhood (laughs) mantra. It is savour the joyful and make peace with the shitty. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) perfection. I love that. Can I get it put on a (laughs) T-shirt? It's been an absolute joy having you here today, Susie. Really enjoyed every moment of it. And I think that anybody listening is going to have lots of brilliant validating take-homes to take from this episode. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, lovely. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more about the work that we do, look out for our books, The Little Book of Self-Care for New Mums and The Little Book of Self-Care for Mums-to-be, where we will talk further about birth, parenthood, relationships and much more. Join us again next week for more chats with another amazing guest. Do let us know what you thought over on Instagram and please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. See you next time on Notes from the Mother Box. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.